Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I'm always looking to help the Next Level Soul audience take their soul to the next level. And I've been able to partner with Mind Valley to present you guys with a ton of free master classes between 60 and 90 minutes covering mind, body, soul, relationships, and conscious entrepreneurship. Some of these master classes are taught by spiritual masters, relationship experts, best selling authors, legends in the personal growth and spirituality space, and so much more. So if you want to sign up for any of our free mind, body, and soul masterclasses, just head over to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Now, today on the show, we have Dr. John Demartini. And Dr. Demartini is a world-renowned human behavior expert He has over four decades of research across multiple disciplines, and he's an internationally published author, global educator, and founder of the Demartini Method, a revolutionary tool in modern psychology. Dr. Demartini and I had a fantastic and deep conversation, not only about how people can overcome their own fears, their own blocks, their own, you know, baggage that they carry with them in life but also went down the spiritual path and how all of that connects back to the spiritual journey that we're all on. So let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, Dr. John Martini. How are you doing, John? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I truly appreciate it. I've been a fan of yours for a while. Uh, we were talking a little bit earlier. That uh, first time I was uh, introduced to you was watching that little documentary, that little independent documentary no one ever saw called The Secret. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that goes back a ways now. Um, that uh, seemed to, to spread quite a bit across the world. So I, I, I got some mileage out of being part of that. So I'm very grateful. Absolutely. So uh, my first question to you, sir, is how did you start your journey helping other people? Well... I was a surfer in Hawaii on the North shore of Oahu. Mm -hmm. And I went over there at age 15 and I was surfing there until almost, well, almost 18. And right before my 18th birthday, I had a close brush with almost dying surfing uh, concern and also some other reasons. And that led me in a recovery of that to a health food store and to a yoga class and a meditation class where a guest speaker named Paul C. Bragg was there. And this one gentleman in one hour, one night, inspired me to believe that I could overcome my learning challenges. Because I had dropped out of school and I was I had learning and reading issues. I couldn't read. And that night I had a dream to overcome that. And to someday be intelligent. And that night I 
when I thought of intelligence, when you're 17 years old and you think of intelligence, you think of somehow a teacher or something, a professor or something. And so that was the night I had sort of been a visionary epiphany of what I wanted to do. And I had a dream to be a teacher and I wanted to travel the world. And so I started on my journey, which led me back to taking a GED, which is a high school equivalency. And then eventually going back and passing that and going on to school with the help of reading dictionaries, because I had to memorize words and things because I was lost on the reading. And eventually passing and eventually doing well and eventually becoming a scholar and going on in to be a, a doctor. And I started my speaking career at age 18. And my first student started at 18. Somebody wanted to listen to me, wanted me to teach them yoga because I had learned about yoga. And that I started gathering students. By the time I was 20, I was having 100 to 150 students a day under the trees gathering, sometimes 400. Um, by the time I was in professional school, I was teaching seven days a week. And it went from there to the city, to a television show, to newspapers, you name it. And it just kept growing. I went to the city, the state, nation. I think I've now spoken probably around 170 countries now. I think it's right at the, that mark. And I never stopped on my dream that I started when I was 17. And I'm now 50 years later. I'm in my 50th year of teaching now, and wow. I'm going on 68, wow. and I'm still doing it. And I can't think of anything else I'd rather be doing. This is what I love doing. This is why I've delegated everything else off my plate. So I don't have to do anything but teach, research, and write. I, don't, I haven't driven a car in 32 years. I haven't cooked since I was 24. I, anything that did not inspire me that I wanted to delegate, I found a way of delegating it and sticking to what I love doing. And so I do this every day of my life. And this is what this is what I do. I'm so grateful that that day on the North Shore spurred what I get to do today. Now, I have to ask you, you, you've you've spoken to so many people and you've taught so much over the course of your life. There is a. A feeling when you give back to people, what has that been like for someone like yourself who's been doing it for now going on 50 years? of the constant helping and transforming people's lives. And, and can you tell the audience what value of giving has done to your life? Well, I was born on Thanksgiving Day. And my mom told me when I was four, put me to sleep. She said, make sure you count your blessings. Those that are grateful for what you have, you get more to be grateful for. Every single day of my life, I have a gratitude journal that I keep of what I get to do. And in there are thousands, I mean, probably hundreds of thousands of thank you letters that I get that bring tears to my eyes. And um, that's probably the most meaningful thing. I mean, when I ask people as I travel, how many of you have moments, go to the moments you've had the most fulfillment in life and you have tears of gratitude. And most people, when we ask, what are we doing at that moment? We're doing something that contributed to somebody else's life and we're getting appreciated for it. So I work on that every day, trying to be of contribution. I've created a, a little affirmation in my head that I create original ideas that serve humanity. And um, I try to uh, persevere in researching and teaching. And so I have something contribute every day. And the thank you letters that I get around the world are tear jerking. 
So I, I get to do things that inspire me and brings tears of gratitude. And I get to receive things that bring gratitude pretty well every day. I believe that I've got the largest collection of, of gratitudes of anybody I've ever met in my life. I have 33 volumes and that's thousands and thousands of pages of gratitudes. And believe it or not, I've got your podcast already in there this morning. I just typed it in for the opportunity to, to um, do it. I could show it to you if you, if you'd like. No, I believe you. I, I, I believe you a hundred percent. That's amazing. I'm glad that I've made, I've made the journals. Well, it, I, I go in there and I, I go in there, I had the opportunity to be interviewed by yourself and to be able to contribute and share with his audience. And so I document whatever I get to do on the daily basis because I, I, I'm a firm believer in setting clear objectives and metricing them daily to refine the actions to achieve. And those, I, so I keep a record of every podcast, every newspaper, every radio show, every, you know, every film I gotten to do. I, mean, I keep records of everything to see that if I say I have an intention, do I really live up to it? Am I walking my talk? And that is a great way of offering feedback. But it also, I get the win of seeing that I'm doing it. So there's integrity, but also gratitude because I get to do that and have those experiences. I've gotten to meet amazing people all over the world that do amazing things because of that journey. So I got a pretty good deal. Right now, I'm, I'm literally uh, halfway between Tahiti and Ecuador sailing in the very most remote part of the Pacific Island, Pacific Ocean um, on my ship. So, and, and I'm, I just got through doing a Polynesian uh, journey uh, through a whole bunch of atolls and uh, islands there. So I'm, I got a pretty grateful life. I can't complain. I mean, someone's got to live it. I mean, I mean, seriously. <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Well, I, I'm a firm believer that I, I set out when I was 18 years old. I was watching a, a little TV show called Kung Fu. With oh, yeah. Carradine. Walk, yeah. <laughs> and and he, he had this uh, Shaolin Temple master, you know, that guided him and stuff. And he was this fictitious picture guy that always kind of taught principles as he went. And I, I really identified with that guy back then. And I was doing yoga at the time when the show was on in 1973. And he mentioned the word master, master. And I thought, I love that word. So I, I wrote that word down. And I made a decision that I wanted to master my life. I didn't know what that really meant, but it just sounded cool. It's like a master of the universe kind of thing. And so then I decided I'm going to formalize that. I'm going to define what that means to me. So I broke life into our spiritual quest, our intellectual quest, our mind development, our career quest, our financial quest, our family relationship quest, our social influence quest, our physical fitness quest. And I started defining how I would love, if I had a magic wand, how I would love that life to be. And I said that I wanted to create original ideas that serve humanity. I wanted to create, wake up my genius and wake up my, and innovate and create and do something that's never been done on the planet. I want to create a global business. I want to have financial independence. And I went around the, the thing and what I wanted to do. I want to have a global family. I want to live around the world. My ship is called the world. I, um, I wanted to have social influence and meet the most amazing people that had global influence. 
I want to be physically fit and vital, uh, ripe into age. I think I'm doing pretty good for 68 almost. And um, be inspired and contribute to something that's a movement of inspiration. And I wrote all that down. And then I said, all right, what is the highest priority action I can do today that can move me one step closer to this reality? And I kept sticking to priority actions and documenting what worked and what didn't work and how do I do it more effectively and efficiently tomorrow? And whatever happened, how does it help me get one step closer? And how do I get remunerated for doing it so I could do what I love and love what I do and not have a schizophrenic life or have a Monday morning blue, Wednesday hump day, thank God it's Friday in a week, friggin' end kind of existence. I want to be able to do what I love and love what I do and get handsomely paid for it so I could exemplify a prioritized life without having to do something that was uninspiring. And so I worked on that and I mapped that and I, I'm pretty diligent about that. And then I try to share that with other people. So people who would love to do that, whatever that is, or maybe some portions of that, to show them how they can become financially independent, how they can grow their business to whatever scale they want, how they can wake up their intellectual capacities or be inspired or whatever. I love helping people because um, I've been researching those topics for all these years. So, you, I mean, I read in your bio that you've read over 30,000 books, and I'm assuming in those, in those uh, studies, you've gone down the spiritual path and probably read some of the great masters and spiritual works uh, in history, throughout human history. You spoke about the spiritual quest. I feel that so many people in today's world are detached from the spiritual aspects of their lives, and they only focus on the money, or they only focus on the physical, or they only focus on one of those areas that you're talking, and they're not as well-rounded. Can you talk a little bit about what a spiritual quest is in your definition, and how can people find what that spiritual quest is for themselves? Good questions. Uh, I'll do that in reverse, because you kind of had two, two questions there, what it is and how do you find it. Uh, every human being regardless of age or culture or spectrum of gender, lives moment by moment by a set of priorities, a set of values, things that are most to least important in their lives. And whatever is in that hierarchy of values that they have, uh, whatever's highest is an intrinsic value. That means that they are spontaneously inspired from within to fulfill it. And no extrinsic motivation is required to get them to do it. There's no reward if they do it, no punishment if they don't mentality. It's just a spontaneous, fluent action towards that objective. There is a thing in the brain called spontaneous potentials versus evoked potentials. Evoked potentials are extrinsically driven and spontaneous ones are intrinsically called. So whatever that is, uh, prioritizing your actions to fulfill that is the most fulfilling mission that a person could do, an individual could do, because our identity, our ontological identity revolves around what we value most. For instance, if you have a mother who has three beautiful children under the age of five, and they're 35 years old, let's say, and their total focus is raising these beautiful children, if you asked that woman what it is that you feel you know, is your identity, she'll say, I'm a mother. I'm a dedicated mother. If you meet a person who's got three companies instead of three children, and they're a serial entrepreneur, even though they may have three children, but that's their highest value is, is being an entrepreneur, and you ask them, who are you? They may not say father. They probably say, I'm an entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur, businessman, a woman. 
if their highest value is fitness and yoga, um, I have a yoga fitness instructor here with me. And, uh, you know, their highest value is the mastery of body and the mastery of, of fitness, right? And you ask them, even though they may have children or they may have a business somewhere else, they still will identify themselves. I'm a yogi or I'm a fitness specialist. Your identity revolves around what you value most and your epistemological pursuit of knowledge revolves around what you value most and your teleological purpose revolves around what you value most. So that's the first step is identifying what is really truly your life demonstrating is intrinsically called for you to do. It's a, it's a feeling that it's, I mean, nobody has to remind me to teach. I, I, this is what I love doing. I do it every single day. I go to bed with it, think about it. It's my love. So finding that is the key to a missionful life. Aristotle called that highest value, the telos, which is the end in mind, which is the primary objective or chief aim by Napoleon Hill. And the study of that was called teleology which is the study of meaning and purpose. So the most meaningful, the most fulfilling, the most inspiring, the most purposeful thing an individual could do is to pursue and fulfill what is truly most intrinsically called and, and you know valuable to that individual. So that is the purposeful path. But it is also a spontaneous inspire where you have the greatest gratitude. Because in that area, whenever you go and pursue that, the blood glucose and oxygen, according to functional MRIs, goes into the executive center and awakens the executive function, which is inspired vision, strategic planning, executing plans with precision, and self-governance, which means to calm down the amygdala's impulses and instincts, which normally distract people from being present and focused. And that is also what you feel is your spiritual path. Nobody is more spiritual or less spiritual than anybody else, but they feel more fulfilled pleuromic, you will, if the, as the Gnostic said, when they're pursuing what is deeply meaningful to them. So the mother, her spiritual path is raising a beautiful family. To the yogi, it may be meditating and doing yoga postures. To the mystic, it may be contemplating the, the universe. To a business individual, it may be creating a massive amount of service to the world efficiently. Whatever that is, that's their spiritual quest, what inspires them, what is meaningful, and that contributes into the great matrix that people love in life. And to me, I, I don't want to box spirituality into, into a religious dogma or an institutional structure, but into a, a, a plethora of possibilities based on what truly inspires the individual to express and to, com to contribute to the planet. Is that why when like a parent, because uh, I'm a parent, and one day my children will leave the nest per se, that syndrome that when you have identified as the mother or the father, and that's your whole life. And when that part of your life leaves you because they have to go off and live their own lives, you feel there's, there's a breakdown because you're like, wait a minute, I don't even know who I am. Or if you focus on career and you lose your job that you've been working at for 20 years, and that's all you've ever identified as your entire world comes crashing down. Or if it's entrepreneurship, and your business goes under and you've lost everything now well i don't i can't identify you know i remember growing up i identified as a filmmaker as a director that was my career and that's all i identified myself as that was the one thing it wasn't multifaceted at all i think your approach is excellent because you are 
you know, your, your variety of all these different things. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But there is that one thing that you really are going towards. But out of all of the things you said, the spiritual is the only one that really, I mean, maybe you could tell me different, doesn't fall away. Like you can't lose your spirit. I don't know. Maybe you can lose your spirituality, I guess, at a certain point, like the yogi or something like that. But all the other ones are based in a material world almost and, and based around things you love in the material world, which is fine because we live in a material world. But I find that the spiritual is the one place that you find the ultimate true fulfillment as you get older um, and in life. This is just me talking. I'd love to hear your opinion on that. You know, I, I get asked by various organizations. I, I mean, I've been blessed to speak to governments, to corporations, to spiritual in, in, you know, industries and spiritual institutes. Mm-hmm. I've met many spiritual leaders. I met the Bampa Lama, the Dalai Lama, Pope, you know, gurus, mystics. I've, I've met all kinds of people. Sure. And um, what I've been blessed to do is to try to ground it because I don't want to dissociate human beings from their physical with their metaphysical. I want to put them together. Mm-hmm. And so I'd like to share this. This is something I shared the other day that I thought was useful. We have uh, an authentic self where we're poised and present and we're inspired and grateful, graced. And we have equanimity. And then we also have a inauthentic self where we can exaggerate ourselves and puff ourselves up with pride or minimize ourselves and deflate ourselves with shame. When somebody challenges our values, we tend to inflate ourselves. When somebody supports our values, we tend to humble ourselves. So if we meet somebody that we perceive consciously that supports us more than challenges us, and we're conscious of the upsides more than the downsides, we can become infatuated with them and minimize ourselves to them. And we can inject their values into our life and sacrifice what's important to us to be with them altruistically. We can also have somebody challenge our values and we'll put them down in a pit and exaggerate ourselves. We'll be too proud to admit what we see in them inside us. And then we'll project our values onto them and try to get them to live in our values, which is futile. So we can exaggerate or minimize ourselves. In either case, when we exaggerate ourselves and we get to almost a narcissistic expectation, others are supposed to live in our values and project our values on them, we will lose customers. We will lose respect from employees as pride before the fall just to humble us, to get us back into authenticity. If we sit there and sacrifice for others, we'll sacrifice our profits and we'll have anarchy in our, in our organization until eventually we go, darn it, I deserve more than this. And we'll lift ourselves back up into authenticity. So there's a feedback, a homeostatic feedback loop trying to take us from our exaggerated and minimized selves into our authentic self. I really believe that our physiology, psychology, our business, our sociology are always offering feedback mechanisms towards our authenticity. But the moment we bring those into equilibrium and have equanimity and have sustainable, fair exchange with somebody else, because now we have equity, we now want to do business with them and they want to do business with us. And we have sustainable prosperity that's potential, a stable business, not a volatile one, and equanimity and authenticity, which is our spiritual path. So I believe that the material 
world of business is actually a mechanism to help people fulfill their spiritual authenticity, which is a path of inspiration, of contribution in sustainable fair exchange in a way that is deeply meaningful to them. Money with meaning leads to philanthropy, the love of humanity. Money without meaning tends to lead to debauchery, which is an impulse, avoidance of challenge, and a seeking of immediate gratification. So I really believe that the spiritual path can be manifested in every area of our life. And all those areas of life are offering feedbacks to help us become inspired by our real deeply called mission. And that mission can change. You know, uh, your, your identity, you can go through identity crisis and blessings and have adjustments to your mission based on your children growing up, uh, uh, COVID, anything could make those cataclysmic changes or micro changes, slow, gradual changes. But whatever it is, your life's journey is the summation of all those destinies. And the hierarchy of your values is dictating those destinies. And your mission is an ongoing, uh, maybe one single path, or maybe a variety of paths that lead to an overall journey that is the path for that individual. And I think that that, uh, finding what that is and identifying what's deeply meaningful and prioritizing your life on a daily basis is one of the most efficient things we can do to have the most fulfilling life. We can live by design or we can live by duty, subordinating as part of the herd, as Ernest Becker described in his Denial of Death, Pulitzer Prize-winning book. Many people subordinate to the herd and then don't get herd instead of actually walking the misfit life, the unborrowed visionary's life of the path which is authentic and allowing themselves to be the individual hero and to embrace both sides of their own life. Many people are trying to compare themselves to others instead of comparing their daily actions to what they value most and give themselves permission to live by priority and congruent where they're inspired and grateful, and that is their spiritual expression. So I don't want to put spiritual expression as too abstract mm-hmm. or too, you know, too mystical or too distant, because I believe we can ground it into a very grateful life, doing something that contributes in a sustainable way and have gratitude and have thankfulness in, uh, in our contribution and our opportunity to be of service. It's so funny that you say the word authenticity, because it's something that I found in my work, people are attracted to authenticity. They are attracted to real because there's so much fake and so much puffing up and social media is so puffed up and everything. Even in life, people are attracted to authentic people, people who are attracted to those misfits, the ones that walk their own path, not the one that walks with the herd. And yet society is constantly telling you, walk in the herd. It starts in school, you know, and in, in, in here in the States, this kind of schooling that we have here, it's all very the bell rings. You do what you're told. If you, you do this, you do that. And if you step out of line, they try to push you right back into the herd. Uh, I had a couple of issues growing up <laughs> um, of not being part of that herd, but I found that authenticity is what people really are attracted to, but yet people are so afraid of embracing their authenticity. They embrace that secret sauce that is theirs and theirs only. There is no other, you know, there's no other John in the world. There's no other Alex in the world. What we have is very specific to us, and when we allow it to shine is where so much success happens for our lives in the material world and also in the spiritual world. Would you agree? Yes. Um, Giving yourself permission to shine, not shrink, to radiate, not just gravitate, and to walk a path of an unborrowed visionary instead of a borrowed vision 
uh, is the unique path of the one who contributes and causes transformation in the world. Otherwise, we have stagnation. So the innovators in life, you won't innovate if you subordinate. You will only innovate when you ordinate. If you're sub superordinate, looking down on people, you'll be distracted with utility trying to get other people to be like you. If you subordinate, you'll be distracted with utility trying to be like somebody else. But if you ordinate and honor the wisdom in them for their uniqueness, according to their highest values, and they honor the wisdom in you and share your wisdom with others, you both contribute. That's called a productivity cycle. It's a non-zero-sum game contribution cycle. That, that is what is the one that opens the doorways of opportunity, in, in my observation. So I do my best in everything that I'm involved in teaching is to help awaken that. Um, now, not everybody is asking for that, and I don't impose that on somebody because I don't find that productive. But uh, to those who believe no proof is necessary, to those who don't, no proof is possible. Waste no words on those who seek not, as the old Proverbs says. So I just share with those people who are interested in hearing it. And if they would like to learn more, then I'm available. If they don't, fantastic. Everybody is on their journey. I, I still believe there's a higher order in the apparent chaos and that no matter what's going on in the world or in life, even the crazies that people are talking about right now, there's still a higher order to it. I had a discussion with some scholars yesterday about this thing that's going on in Russia and Ukraine and stuff. And um, they had completely opposing views on it. It was quite interesting watching. And um, they, I, I, they turned to me at the end and they said, well, John, what, do you, what, do you, what side are you on? <laughs> and I said, I'm not on a side. And they said, what do you mean you're not on a side? And I said, um, I see two subjectively biased individuals projecting their wounds onto this discussion. And um, I, I'm, I'm not wounded by these two, these two things, so I don't react in this situation. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I said, I can see the pros and cons of both your, your views. And so I pointed out the pros and cons, the pros and cons. And I said, I'd rather be objective because if you take a stance and you take a stance, you're victims of circumstance and you're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to have a dialectic. You're going to have a debate. And a dialectic will lead to a synthesis and a greater awareness. The debate will just lead to two people with two opinions. And I said, uh, so I see the benefits and drawbacks of both sides, and I choose not to be attached to either one of those. And um, they, they were like quieted by that, but they were like, then secretly came up one after one and wanted to still try to convince me. And I said, I'm not here to be convinced of a side, because that's a subjective bias. I'm interested in seeing the whole. And um, so that was where I left it. So I'm a firm believer that there's a, there's a hidden order. If you study... Uh, chaos, and you study disorder, and you study Claude Shannon's work on information theory, you'll see something really amazing. You'll see that disorder just means missing information. Entropy means missing information. The tendency to go toward disorder, which means the tendency to have unconsciousness and, and ignorance about the whole. But if we know how to ask quality questions that wake up our unconscious to make us fully conscious, we can see a whole which automatically brings a great state of grace to us. And we realize there's nothing to fix. <laughs> there's something to honor and something to be appreciative of. And I choose not to, uh, not to react to the sides. I choose to 
ask news questions to make sure I see the whole and not stop until I see something that I'm grateful for. And then I don't have to do anything except think. And the no. person that's there, I find, draws people to them and magnetizes people to them. Like you said, people are interested in authenticity. They're not interested in opinions. Now, you, I mean, obviously, you've been around for a few years and you've seen how society in general has changed. I, I feel like the consciousness, even in my life, has changed so radically from when you were 18 doing yoga, which I'm sure a lot of people looked at you strange during those years of like yoga. Like, what is that meditation? What is that? And now it's a very common thing. I feel that the consciousness is of, of humanity is growing. But we are in a weird time that there's so much disorder, so much kind of shaking of the paradigm of what we what we have used been used to with the war now, with, you know, uh, global warming and the weird weather that we're having, political strife, COVID. So much of this stuff is happening. There's obviously something happening to the world because now we're all fe- we're all feeling it at the same time I- in a weird way i've never seen anything like that in my lifetime or honestly in history where the entire planet is going through covid at the same time the entire planet is going through these weird um weather patterns and what's going on what's your opinion on the consciousness of humanity and and what's your opinion on what's going on um in the world right now just as a general shakeup of the world well, we have governance over three things in our life, our perceptions, decisions, and actions. Right. And it's not what's out there. It's our perceptions of what's out there. And if we react, it's because we have incomplete information. If we act out of appreciation and love, it's because we're now more whole in our awareness. There is a thing called a global peace index. And 99.7% of the world's population is encompassed in it. And it's an institution that basically measures the degree of criteria that they determine conflict and peace, cooperation, competition, et cetera, globally. And most countries are in it. Not all, but there's a few uh, that have not been factored in, but most of them are. And I've been watching that for a long time. And regardless of what anybody says, the data is there. And peace and war maintain balance. And so if we look at a localized conflict and don't look at the comp- compensations as emerson say to it we'll react but if we look at where it's going on for instance ukraine right now is getting you know challenge but it's also getting massive support and challenge and support destruction construction destroy build or whatever these are these are part of transformation evolution of transformation your body has the sympathetic nervous system, which is catabolic, and the parasympathetic nervous system, which is anabolic. One builds, it, it undergoes reduction, the other one oxidation, it destroys. Uh, prey builds anabolic, predator, destruction, catabolic. And we have to have both of those in a metabolic equilibrium for us to adapt to a changing environment and to constantly um, evolve. And just like a living organism does that, the Collective organism, society, and the world itself has demonstrated this, a self-organizing system that is balanced in that perspective. If we look for the answer to where is the other side, instead of just reacting with a misperception, 
And we then impulsively go and rescue or instinctively avoid and label with subjective biases. We actually see the, 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 a, a living intelligence that's greater than our reactions undergoing its job of transformation. We, what we think is terrible, a day, a week, a month, a year, five years later, we're going to say thank you. But why have the wisdom of the ages with the aging process? You can have the wisdom of the ages without it by asking the right questions. So I don't choose to watch social media and, you know, the television version because they are designed. I've been on enough television. I've been on 9,000 shows. Uh, I've been on enough television to know that that's sensationalism, most of it. Sure. They exaggerate and get opinion and they draw opinions and people get to talk. And that's what sells uh, commercialism. I'm not interested in mass media. I'm interested in master awareness. And so I look at the Global Peace Index. I watch the factors. I look in the world for whatever's going on, where the opposites are. I look for complementary opposites. I look for the law of heuristic escalation, which anytime in chaos theory, something comes in, it's equal and opposite will be born. Heraclitus, 5th century BC, talked about these complementary pairs of opposites. Parmenides said the same thing. Pythagoras approached this the same way. Aristotle did it. Zeno. All the great minds through the ages have referred to these pairs of opposites, but for some reason, mass consciousness chooses to see one side without the other and have a subjective bias and let the external world extrinsically drive them towards or away from things instead of look deeper, broader, and actually have that spiritual awareness. A broad mind sees neither good nor evil. A narrow mind sees either good or evil. So I choose to widen my mind, see both sides act, not react, and inform people of that to calm down their reaction so they can understand a bigger, broader game, what's on, on, on the planet. When we do, we don't see the chaos. Chaos is missing information. We, if we see the chaos, we participate in it, and we react, and somebody of the equal and opposite nature will react in the opposite way to keep things in balance. So I'm, 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 I'm about asking the right question. Whatever lives basically quite the questions ask. Aristotle said that excess and deficiency were the vices and the golden mean was the virtue. And so if you can see the thing you think excess and find the downsides and the thing you think is deficient, find the upsides and become conscious of those sides, you can come to the golden mean. And the golden mean is the spiritual quest of love in life, which is the pair of opposites synthesized. So I'm a firm believer in asking those questions. And frankly, I am doing that right now in our daily life. And as a result of it, it I'm able to stay poised amongst the so-called poison. But don't be fooled by outer appearances. I have people come to me all the time and they want to become victims of history and not masters of destiny. And they want to run their story about how they've had these challenges. My mother wasn't there for this. Or this wasn't happening or that. And I said, when your mother wasn't there, who became your mother? What do you mean? What did you think you missed in your mother? Well, affection and tension. Who gave you affection and tension? Oh, my teacher. Oh, my best friend's mother. Oh, yeah, the girlfriend. What was the benefit of them doing it? And what would have been the drawback of the mom doing it? Because you have a fantasy, life would have been happier. What would have been the drawback of that? And I helped them ask a new set of questions, and all of a sudden they realized nothing's missing. I was in Nepal with the Bampa Lama, and we had a conversation about the idea that nothing's missing. It's only missing in our awareness because we're not asking the right question, becoming cognizant of the unconscious. And so I'm a firm believer of looking deeper and broader and, and opening the mind to a higher order that's going on. There's a wisdom that's a matrix of wisdom that's going on that we don't always take time to look and acknowledge. And if you do, you'll be grateful every day. 
I find it really fascinating the concept of the balance when there's a great evil, a great good comes up, or when there's a great good, some other value, something's always balancing your in your own life and also on a micro level and on a macro level around the world. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, and it, it's really interesting. So then in many ways, some of the things that are happening in the world today could be counterbalanced with all the good. And I think what you said was interesting, like the Ukraine is going through a lot right now, but they ma- I've never seen the mass of support that I just never seen in as my one, lifetime. As one, subsides, <laughs> as one subsides, so with the other. As one, It's called the law of heuristic escalation, if you want to study that. Mm-hmm. A law of heuristic escalation, Eris was discord and in, in, and so if you raise up disorder, ensue, order ensues. If you raise up order, disorder ensues. If a government tries to impose a new rule, a sanction, disorder occurs. If all of a sudden disorder occurs, order tries to come. And they both rise together, and they're both subjective biases and interpretations of reality. But, but the idea of the good and evil, this is another thing that we have. If we look in our amygdala, which is a subcortical area of our brain, it has a nucleus accumbens for pleasure, and it has a striatum and another area for pain. And so these two areas are involved in seeking prey and avoiding predator. So it's a survival desire center, that's that location. But it's also governed from above, from the executive function, which is a medial prefrontal cortex, and it governs and mitigates and calms down and dampens the volatilities of that reactor. And most people are caught in reaction. And believe it or not, this is going to shock people, but morality comes from that reactionary center, not the executive center. Morality is, in a, is a subjective bias interpretation of our existence. We label something good only when we don't see the downsides. We label something bad only when we don't see the upsides. And one person's heaven is another person's hell, as John Milton said. But the fact is that it's neither. It's neither until somebody with a narrowed mind labels it such. I was involved in, a, in mediating a conflict between five Israeli leaders and three Palestinian leaders. And I had uh, the, the first moment I walked in there, the, the, one of the Israeli leaders put their hand up and said, Dr. Martini, I have a question for you before we begin this. He said, do you believe in absolute evil? And I said, no. Well, I do. And I said, is it possible that's why for 14 years you've been trying to mediate something and got nowhere? Because what you're considering evil, you're trying to change. You're trying to get somebody else to live in your values. And if you do, you will get nowhere. They calmed down for a second. And I then turned to them and I said, what do you call absolute evil? And they said, intolerance. Now, it was very obvious that they were being intolerant at the time, but they were blind to their own reality. And we only judge other people when they remind us of parts of ourselves we haven't loved and haven't integrated and owned in our lives. And that's as old as we can trace in history that's been known. So I said, so well, you're, you're saying intolerance is it. Okay, great. I said, now go to a moment when you've been intolerant in your life. I'm never intolerant. I pride myself on never being intolerant. I'm very tolerant. Everybody I know knows I'm intolerant. I would never be intolerant. I'm always tolerant. And I said, well, that's interesting because I look at my life and I have all sides. I have moments of tolerance and moments of intolerance. Let me give you some of my intolerances. I've been intolerant at airports. I've been intolerant in, in, in hotels. I've been intolerant with food and restaurants. I've been intolerant with salespeople. I've been intolerant with my girlfriend, my kids, my that. And I listed about 50 intolerances, bam. 
to broaden her perspective of where her intolerances were. And then she goes, oh. She said, okay. And I said, now, let's go to a moment when you've been intolerant. She started listing it. Go the next moment, listed it. And I made her do 39 examples of intolerance until she humbled herself, had a tear come out of her eye, and realized, hmm, I have that behavior too. And I explained that you did that because you believed that that was the greatest advantage or disadvantage in the moment you acted that way. She goes, I did. I said, so what you thought was something was wise to do was labeled intolerant by somebody else. She goes, that's true. I said, do you own that trait that you've been judging in this person now? I do. I said, now go to a moment when you actually perceive this individual being intolerant. Great. Now, in that moment, how did that serve you? It didn't. How can it do that? I went, wait a minute. Now, you, your intolerance is serving people. How did this uh, intolerance of this individual serve you? I can't see it. I don't know. When somebody says, I don't know, I can't, and I'm not, that means that it's low on their values to do it. Their pride is going to be altered if you confront that. I said, go look again. I held her accountable. Look for the benefits. And then we came to this realization that this very person that was intolerance is what initiated her career path of being a leader. <laughs> it made her write a book. It made her have a following. It made her have influence. And she was a housewife before that. And she became a world leader, a female world leader in the, in the, in the industry. I said, so you're saying that this person that's absolute evil, that's been intolerant, is not a, a gift? If, because what you're saying is you catalyze all the things you've done. Is everything you've done part of that evil or is it actually contributed? She says, well, it's contributed. I said, well, then it came out of that experience that you called was evil. And she went, hmm. I said, did you ever thank them for all the accomplishment or give them a cut out of the royalty for stimulating this drive? She goes, I didn't. And I made her think of the benefits. And we calculated 32 benefits until tears came out of her eyes. When she did, her makeup was messed up. She sat there and she goes, hmm. Now she had, there's either a Palestinian Israeli leaders in the room. And she said, I need to take a break. And we gave everybody a little potty break. And all of a sudden, the guy that she was judging was in the room, came up to me and said, wow, my anger towards these people have just shifted from this conversation. I could have swore she was talking about me. And I said, she was talking about you. You were the one that catalyzed her career 28 years ago. You've been at it a long time. He says, I'm going to have to go and revamp this. Anyway, we got them conversing. We got them in mediation. We got them conversing. And she went on the radio and changed her attitude. Because I told her, I said, are you really committed to mediating and resolving conflict? Or are you interested in being right and perpetuating this as you've been doing for 14 years? Because if you're just doing it for your own pride to get a center of attention, be honest with yourself. If you really want to meet that, that position of righteousness is not going to get you anywhere. And it calmed down that day. And she went on the radio show when I came back. To meet with her the next time she had me interviewed on a radio show and she told the entire story how she humbled herself and now made progress because as long as she was right she wasn't love and that's an inauthentic turned into authentic and when you get authentic life transforms wow that's a very powerful story and I, and as you were talking I, rem I remind myself of all the quote unquote, bad things or evil things or negative things that happened to my, in my life. And when you start looking back, if it wasn't for those bad things, if it wasn't for those things that I perceived were the end of the world for me at that moment, 
I look back and going, what a blessing that was because that spawned me to do this. I sit here right now speaking to you with this show and multiple other podcasts that I run because I come from a place of trying to help people avoid um, pitfalls in life, to try to help them on their path, to help guide them. Because when I was in the darkest time of my life, I didn't truly have anyone to help me. And only my me going through the, the darkest, worst time in my life did that spawn this wanting to help other people so so vividly. And now I thank that person in that situation and I honor it because it truly is made me who I am. Though while I was going through it, it was hell for about a year. But after that time, I was able to now look back 18 years now, 19 years from uh, from when it happened and thank that situation for who I am today and the the work that I'm doing. And that's hard to see when you're in the book. You need to pull back from the book to be able to see what's going on. <laughs> well, the, the hell that we call hell is just incomplete awareness, and it is an exact event needed to break our addiction to a fantasy of who we are so we can come into our authenticity. Our addiction to fantasies are what breed our hells. I always say that uh, the more you're addicted to protection, the more you attract aggression. The more you're addicted to peace, the more you attract violence. The more you're addicted to one side, the more you attract the other side to teach you to embrace both sides of life. You need the sympathetic and parasympathetic. You need the prey and predator. If you had nothing but prey without predator, you'd be gluttonous and fat and not fit. If you had nothing but predator without prey, you'd be emaciated, starved and not fit. But you put prey and predator together, supporter and challenger there, the peace and the war together, you get fit. Maximum life, maximum order, maximum growth and development occurs at the border of the support and the challenge, the pairs of opposites. And every perception, every perception that we ever make bursts a pair of opposites. And it's in that moment of perception that the conscious and unconscious split with subjective biases and we label things impulsively or instinctively to seek and avoid. And the world runs us extrinsically. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But the moment we ask the right question to become fully conscious in that moment and see both sides, we become poised and present back into authenticity. Otherwise, we're going to be seeking it and subordinating or avoiding it and subordinating instead of being just ordinate. And when we see the order, we're ordinate. We have equanimity within us and equity between others. And we have the most sustainable. We have less noise in the brain for great clarity of consciousness. We have a yearning to contribute. Our business becomes more stable. Our economics become more greater self-worth. Our relationships are more stable. Our social contribution is more stable. Our physical fitness is more stable. We have resilience, adaptability, heart rate variability. It's, it, it's, it goes up and we're inspired. So everything in the world, I think, is trying to guide us back to that. Even the things we think are hellacious, they're not. They're just, we've been holding on to our fantasy. We need a good jolt to break our addiction to the fantasies. It's a great example of, of what we're talking about. And I think everyone listening will understand. There was a movie many years ago, and I think it was in 78 or 76, uh, called Jaws. And Jaws came out, and all of a sudden, sharks were evil. 
They are monsters that need to be eradicated from the planet. And unfortunately, that is what's been happening over the course of the last 40 or 50 years that people look at a shark and it's, oh my God, they need to be wiped out. But without sharks, the ocean would be completely unbalanced. That pre- that predator lets the prey go crazy. It happened in Yellowstone when the wolves were, were gone. They Out of Yellowstone, the deer population exploded and then plants started to die off because there was too many deers eating the plants. But the second the wolves were brought back in, think, uh, I was, I was, I was uh, watching that um, foliages and trees that had been dead for 50 years started to flourish again just because the wolves were back in Yellowstone. So it's just, a, and again, wolf, another character in story that is our pure evil. Um, but I think it's, a, it's just a good example to show what we label as bad is really has a purpose in the balance of the world and the balance of ecosystems, correct? I was just, I was just in some of the atolls in the French Polynesia and um, there was a snorkeling moment where we counted 400 sharks going around us. None of them were interested in eating us. None of them. I used to surf with the sharks. Never, they never ate anybody. Now, there are places in, in uh, Australia where the warmer water is, where they sometimes get caught in the warmer water and people get affected by sharks. But when you stop and think of how many billions, probably the sharks there are in the world, in the oceans, and how many casualties from that, it's definitely over overrated. Sharks are, they in, they, these sharks that were there were eight to 10 foot, six foot to 10 foot. They were eating small fish. You know, everything had its place in there. We were not its target. If we were bleeding and we were just damaged, it might maybe notice that, but it wasn't interested in that. People were, were literally snorkeling there and sharks were everywhere. Right. I mean, right next to you, but they never bothered you. So we have subjective biases because of incomplete of information, labeling things good or bad. Because uh, I always say that whatever you experience, you can make a heaven out of a hell or a hell out of a heaven. I, I specialize in that. I teach a program called The Breakthrough Experience. I've been doing it 1,143 times for the last 33 years. And uh, I have people come in with every imaginable thing that's happened in their life that they think is torture and trauma and tragedy and turmoil and this and that. And I have yet to find something that the mortal body can experience that the immortal soul, the state of unconditional love, can't transcend. So I just hold people accountable. Instead of having them run their story, stop the story. Don't be a victim of history. Stop the story. Stop running a story about how terrible something is. Stop and ask, how is it going to help me fulfill what is most meaningful to me? How is it serving me? How is it benefiting me? How is it strengthening me? What is it allowing me to do that I wouldn't be able to do? What does it keep me from having to do that I don't want to do? Ask a new set of questions. Your quality of your life changes. And don't be attached to the opposite. Whatever you condemn, it's opposite becomes a fantasy. And whatever you have as a fantasy, it's opposite becomes a nightmare. You create these by the very delusion of one side or the other. But by keeping yourself from the fantasy, you know, people have a fantasy that life's supposed to be always peaceful and kind. There is no such thing as a human being that's always peaceful and kind. There is no such thing. I'm not a kind person. I'm not a 
cruel person. I'm not nice. I'm not mean. I have moments when I'm nice, when you support my values. And I'm moments when I can be a tiger, when you challenge my values. I'm a human being. I have all parts. I don't need to get rid of half of myself to love myself. Neither, neither does anybody else. Nor do you have to get rid of half the world to love the world. The magnificence of the world is there if you open your eyes to see the balance of opposites. To extract meaning out of your existence is to be able to see the upsides to what you think is down and the downs to what you think is up and balance the equation out and become present. And then the world outside you doesn't run you because now the governance within governs your perceptions. William James said the greatest discovery of his generation is that human beings can alter their lives by altering their perceptions and attitudes of mind. I agree with him on that. And Wilhelm I, another founder of psychology, said there's simultaneous contrast and sequential contrast. When you have sequential contrast, you're emotional and you're letting the world around you run you because you're seeing good without evil or evil without good in your illusion. But when you have simultaneous contrast, you see neither. And you realize there's the upside to what I thought was down. There's the down to what I think of. So I see the balance and I'm appreciative of the order that's sitting there. And it allows you to kind of feel a communion with a, almost an intelligence in the universe. It was Einstein that said it's enough for me on a daily basis to contemplate just a small portion of the magnificent pattern and tapestry in the universe. He was interested in that. He wasn't interested in anthropomorphic deities created by insecure individuals that created moral hypocrisies. He was interested in an overarching awareness of, of the, the magnificence sitting inside the universe. And I'm a firm believer that that's accessible to any human being if they ask the right question. So I want to ask you this. I'm going to ask you this question. So many people in the world have have body issues that they want to lose weight or they want to get healthier. They want to do this. And so many have tried every diet, every fad, every workout routine. And the story that they're telling them themselves is like, I've been around, I've done so many things, nothing ever works for me. What would you say to, to people like that that are, are, are fighting with this constantly in their lives as an example of changing the story or asking the right questions? Glad you asked that. First of all, um, no one, does anything unless they perceive in that moment there's more advantage than disadvantage. And so when somebody tells me, I, I got to stop overeating, I keep overeating, I got to stop this, or I need to start exercising. Anytime somebody says something like that, but isn't living it, I pay no attention. I don't pay attention to what people say. I pay attention to what they live. Because what they live, you have people all the time say, well, this relationship's killing me. 10 years later, they're still there talking about how it's killing them. Or their job is the same way. I don't pay attention to what people say. I pay attention to what they actually are doing. And because if they are doing it, there's a reason for it. So then I ask them, uh, can I give a real case? I'll give a real case. Please. Uh, I, I was asked uh, maybe 10 years ago to do a reality TV show with Univer at Universal Studios. And they said, Dr. DiMartini, what we want you to do is we want you to transform 12 people's lives. You've got 24 hours to do it. And we're going to select some of the craziest things you can imagine from a homeless to a heroin addict to an overweight overeater to somebody that tried to commit suicide. We're going to give you these cases and you're going to do what you can in two hours. And we're going to film the whole thing before and after. I said, OK, fine. So I get this lady who comes in. And she walks into this this uh, place where we're filming and she brings two boxes of food. And then she goes on and she says, 
Oh, I brought everybody some food in case we had got hungry and everything else like that. Nobody asked for food. There's already food there. But she just went out of her way to do that. And then she went on to eating those two boxes. Now, this is more food than I eat in a week. She ate it that day. It was unbelievable. I, it's like incomprehensible how you could even put that much food in your body. Just gouged it, just devoured the food. And then she turns to me and she says, you got to help me. I, I have a eating disorder and I, you got to help me. I can't stop eating and everything else like that. And I've I'm, I'm gained weight and everything else. And she was a large woman. And the first thing I asked her, time says start. I said, okay, stop the story. Stop talking. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Because you're telling me you've got to stop, but you're not. So you're getting an advantage out of it. I want to know what the unconscious motives are. So what's the benefit of you eating like you do and keeping your weight on? <laughs> Pardon me, I could, uh, somebody came to my door. No worries. So I said, what's, what's the benefit of, of um, somebody, you, know, you eating? And she says, there isn't. There's no benefit. I can't think of any. I said, look again. You wouldn't be doing it if there wasn't a benefit. What's the benefit you're getting out of it? So all of a sudden she said, she said, well, um, everybody in my family is large and overweight. And as a result of them being overweight, I, um, I don't feel like I'm part of the family unless I am big. And this is my way of feeling part of the family. And I said, okay, great. Write that down. So she writes it down. Go to the next benefit. Why are you keeping overweight? Another benefit of why you're, why you're overweight. And she says, uh, hmm, my sister was bigger than me as a child. And because of that, she used to push me around and bully me. And I made a point to never be smaller than her so she can never push me around. So no matter what her size is, I'm always bigger. I said, great, write that down. Now I go to the third one. And I just keep going. And she comes to this next one. And she said, wow. She got teary-eyed. She goes, whoa. She had to get a Kleenex. And she said, there was a point in my life where I went on a, almost a fasting, you know, wild fasting thing. And I lost 45 pounds. And I started to get a bit of a shape. Never a real shape, but I mean, I started to have a bit of a shape. And a guy hit on me. And, and, uh, and I thought I was in love. I had never been with a guy. But this guy showed affection towards me. And all of a sudden, I, I fell for it, I guess. And the very first night I was with this guy, we made love. I didn't even know how to make love. And we made love. And the next day, I never saw him again. That was it. He was gone. And then six weeks later, I found out I was pregnant. And I'm a Catholic. And I was raised that you're going to go to hell if I have abortion. And you're going to go to hell if you have sex out of wedlock. You're going to go to hell if you don't marry this person. And all this conflict was in her head. And the turmoil she went through, the torture she went through, made her say to herself deep inside, I will never allow myself to be attractive to a man like that again. Never been with a man since. She made sure she never lost weight because the last time she lost weight, that's what happened. So we have associations that we accumulate in our life that are stored in a so-called subconscious mind which are actually facilitations and inhibitions in the brain that are storing up noise in the brain. And what this does is it makes us make decisions that are not on a conscious level always, 
but is on a subconscious level and it's making us avoid and seek accordingly. If she also found out that she's in the in the television industry, and if she's looks when she eats, her skin is stretched and it's smooth, and people always compliment her on her on her stretch and her large breasts. So when she's on TV, she always shows the top half where she has smooth skin, thick hair, and big breasts. But if she loses weight, they, everything sags and she starts losing some of that tone. And so she had unconscious motives that were making sure she kept her weight on. Now, I've worked with hundreds and probably a thousand cases of, quote, overweight. And I've worked with organizations that have had that. I've yet to find a reason, an, an, an individual that didn't have an unconscious motive. And even the thyroid, they say, well, I've got a low thyroid. Yeah, but even the thyroid, the thyroid gland comes from the thyroglossal duct, wrath the pouch and everything else. And it comes from a state where all of a sudden uh, it's involved in speech and the tongue and metabolism. And if for some reason you are not speaking up and holding what you want to say inside, your thyroid goes down. If you're speaking up and saying something tactlessly, Without thinking, your thyroid goes up. And so they were repressing what they were going to say because this person was in uh, a relationship and was afraid of stirring up the pot with the relationship and was suppressing it and shutting down the thyroid also sometimes. I see people that way. So all the reasons why people keep weight, there's always a motive for it. Because anytime you have subconsciously stored baggage sitting inside that's not brought up and neutralized, the ghrelin and leptin hormones, which are involved in overeating and undereating, is skewed and thrown off. The homeostatic mechanism is, is actually reset, not in a centered state, but off to one side. And we go into this addictive cycle because we're actually trying to prevent ourselves from the things we've associated with keeping weight down. So I, I'm a firm believer in asking what those unconscious motives are, bring them to the conscious level, and then addressing them by coming up with viable alternative ways of getting those same accomplished same benefits that they're getting by a viable alternative, and then linking that to what they value most, and then delinking what they're doing from their values and rearranging that, and not disempowering them, not saying that they have no power, not giving them some anthropomorphic deity to protect them and to take them because they have no power, but to actually realize that they've done this on an unconscious level and they have the power to change their life consciously. So, so what would be the questions? What would be the questions that you would ask? Uh, you should be asking yourself if you feel that you're overweight, or you feel like you uh, there's an area of your of the, the, you know that you're overeating, or this or that. What are those questions that you need to ask yourself in order to come to to grips with the true reason why you are overweight? Well, first thing is that anytime you're not filling your day with the highest priority actions that are most deeply meaningful and inspiring and spontaneously important to you. The blood glucose and oxygen goes into the amygdala and not the executive center. The executive center governs those behaviors and keeps them moderate. When you're out of the executive center, you're going to the amygdala, and the amygdala starts polarizing things. You become, in a sense, a bipolar state. You overeat, you underate, you feel guilty, and you have a licensing effect. So the first thing to do is to fill your day with high-priority action and start identifying what is meaningful to your life, because if you don't fill it with meaning, you're going to fill it with food. You're going to fill it with drugs. You're going to fill it with sex. You're going to fill it with whatever the addictive drivers are. Whatever you've associated with pleasure without pain, you go back to those the second you're not doing something meaningful. Almost everybody knows if they've got an incredible event going on, a wedding that they're about to get married and they're about to be in a dress for the 10 days beforehand, they're not overeating. They're making sure they've got something purposefully to get. But the day of the wedding, once they've got the ring, now they're overeating. But up until that, they have something meaningful to get, get a picture taken in a, in a wedding dress. 
So anytime you fill your day with something meaningful, you're less likely to overeat or overdrink or over anything. So that's the first step. And then you got to find out what are the benefits you're getting out of it and be honest about it. Because if you deny the benefits you're getting out of it, you're going to pretend like you're, it's running you when in fact you're running you. And quit giving your power away to something outside you because I don't, I don't find that to be true. Your dopamine levels are not something because of extrinsic. It's the associations you made with it. That's why we've been able to take people who have been on heroin off heroin without side effects by going into the moments they're actually in the high from the heroin and find out where the low is at that moment because you can't have one without the other in the brain and show them the pains associated with it. And all of a sudden, the very highs that they have withdrawal symptoms from, anytime you feel the loss of that which you feel high about, you're going to have the withdrawal symptoms. If I show them the pain associated with that, those moments of high and balance them, there's no withdrawal symptoms. And then you can take them off the so-called heroin or off the, the, the drug use or the sex addictions or whatever it may be that's, that's the assumption that they had a positive without a negative on. There's never an addiction without a subdiction, something they're trying to avoid that's been, in their mind, traumatizing, that they're trying to dissociate from, and the compensation for that, which they've associated with pleasure. So I go in there and balance out the equations on both of them and find out their motives for doing it. It's not that hard to do. I have a whole series of steps that I go through to help dissolve that in people. And in the normal recidivist rates of, of the 12-step program is 3 to 7% in most cases, maybe 15 in some cases. You can get 80, 90% if you ask the right questions and help people not dodge the accountabilities of their own creation. What is the Demartini method? The Demartini method is a series of questions that make you conscious of what was unconscious to bring you into full consciousness, to see the balance that's inherent in life that you're overlooking when you're in emotional swings. Uh, it allows you to stabilize yourself and be more purposeful in, instead of uh, volatile. It allows you to take resentments or infatuations or pride or shame or grief or all the classical reactions that you face and neutralize them. And uh, it's a very powerful tool. I've used it all over the world. We've used it in the Christchurch uh, earthquake. We've done it in the tsunami in Phuket, the tsunami in, in Japan, the earthquake in Japan. The China one, we've used it and brought in facilitators to help people. It's a very powerful tool in helping you see the order in your apparent chaos in life so you can be grateful for life instead of being caught in baggage stories. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Right, as opposed to living in the memories or living in the imagination, which is the future you're living in the in the now and focusing on what you can do currently. Every, every time you under have you have memory and imagination, you have the arrow of time. Entropy is a result of the arrow of time, the tendency of disorder. The second you actually become fully conscious of things, there's no time. As Deepak wisely said, uh, "Timeless mind, ageless body." In that moment, you're present. And when you're present, there's no addictive behavior. When you're present doing something that's deeply meaningful and you've extracted the meaning out of your existence and you're present doing that, you don't even think about it. Almost everybody can think of a moment in their life where they've been extremely engaged, really inspired by doing something deeply meaningful. And in those moments, they're not overeating. They're not over drinking. They don't even think about those things. They're preoccupied and present with something that's extremely meaningful to them at that moment. And I'm a firm believer that that's, uh, if you fill your day with 
challenges that inspire you, it doesn't fill up with challenges that don't. You fill your day with high-priority actions that inspire you, it doesn't fill up with low-priority distractions that don't. It's the low-priority distractions that initiate the amygdala. It's the high-priority actions that wake up the executive function. We have in self an authentic and executive and grateful capacity at any time if we prioritize our life. But we can't do priorities by living by other people's expectations. We do priorities by going inside. And when the voice and the vision on the inside is louder than all those opinions on the outside, now you begin to master your life. Now I'll ask you a couple of questions, ask all my guests. What is your mission in this life? <laughs> well, for 50 years, I've been teaching. And um, this is what I love doing, researching, writing, and teaching every day. That's, and I just do that every day. That's what I love doing. And I, 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 every possible vehicle, uh, radio, television, newspapers, magazines, movies, podcasts, um, blogs, any possible vehicle that has allowed me to get a message out, um, I use to research and share and disseminate information to help people see the magnificence of their life and uh, be able to see the order in their life instead of sitting there caught in the, the assumed chaos in their life. So that's what I do. That's my mission. That's what I love. It's, I hope to do that till I, my physical body doesn't allow me to do it anymore. And why do you think we are all here? Well, that's individualized. It's based on the hierarchy of their values, which is a fingerprint-specific uniqueness. Uh, each individual will feel called to do what is meaningful to them. And the world needs all the above. It needs every possible value arrangement. Some people are going to be dedicated to raising kids and families, and some will be business, and some will wealth, and every, everybody is needed, and nobody's right or wrong, but everybody's needed. And believe it or not, even the villain. Without the villain, there's no heroes. <laughs> Without the crime, there's no police. You know, everybody has a place in the game. And um, whenever you see somebody is trying to give something for nothing, you will automatically create and generate somebody trying to get something for nothing. So all the do-gooders over there that are altruistic, that are sacrificing themselves for other people, actually are breeding the narcissists that are coming out and sacrificing others for themselves. And these are pairs of opposites that most people don't see. And we label one good and the other evil, but these are actually inseparable, complementary, entangled pairs of opposites in the world. And so that's why everybody serves. And our job is not to try to fit somebody into your model that reality here, but just, just to help people realize that they're participation serves a magnificent contribution. And, and the second they believe that and see that, it, they participate on a more fuller conscious level. You can't so have dark. I'm not going to say that uh, anybody's, anybody's got the right this or the right. I don't live like that. I don't find that to be productive. Whatever have, is meaningful to you is your path. You can't have Darth Vader without Luke Skywalker. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm not. I, I, I would say, if you want to master your life, you have to honor both the hero and the villain, the saint and the sinner. You have to honor all of you. So, and you're only going to grow to the level of what you can honor. And if you've got a part, you go, I don't want to, I want to deny that part. You're only going to grow to that part. You're not going to grow past it. So anything that you infatuate with or condemn in yourself is going to run your life until you love yourself. So the same thing for other people, because they're just representing that. And if you judge them, they're just judging that inside you. I, 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 I always say that people that want to dissociate and blame things on the outside and look for solutions on the outside are not going to be as powered as people who realize that those are their perceptions of the outside and take command of that perception and your actions and give yourself permission to be all of the above. I don't and, need to get rid of any part of myself to love myself. 
And, and Doc, where can people find out more about your work and your books and your courses and the things you do? Well, they can endure me after this, this uh, inter interview. <laughs> they may think this guy's a bit wild, but uh, they can just go to drdmartini.com. You know, on there is a there's a value determination process, which is free and private and complimentary. Uh, take the time to take 30 minutes of your life and go and do that little exercise. It's 13 questions that might just open up a new awareness about what's really important to you, about what's deeply what you're really committed to, and then start structuring your life accordingly. But go on and do that. But the drdmartini.com is the website. They can spend the rest of their life on there. There's more information on there that they could probably look at and observe and read and study for the rest of their life. So it'll keep you busy. Dr. Martini, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a fantastic conversation, and I look forward to having you back on the show uh, in the future because I know we can talk about many, many things. Uh, so I appreciate you so much, and I appreciate what you do for the world. So thank you, my friend. Well, thank you, Alex. I appreciate the opportunity to be on your show, and thank you for the great questions. and. And whoever's listening out there, thank you for supporting this show because um, that's what we're all about, helping disseminate information that can be of service to people. So thank you, Alex. I want to thank Dr. Martini for coming on the show and really sharing his knowledge with all of us. I hope this conversation has inspired you and given you a few more tools to put in your toolbox to help you on your spiritual path. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash zero four six. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.